Greetings, friends! Welcome back to another episode of the Film Alchemist Podcast, the show where we look at movies we love, break them apart, to find out what gives them their magic. I'm your host, Josh Griffey, joined as always by my sweater-wearing murder granny and co-host, Alex Dandino. Oh, that's sad, actually. I guess Mrs. Uh, P.O. Voorhees never actually got to be a granny. That's sad. That's a brutal way to start. P.O. Voorhees, very nice. Yeah, Mrs. P.O. Voorhees. You're welcome for my We're starting this one off right. (laughs) All right, guys, you made it uh, through with us through every Nightmare on Elm Street. I believe this Friday is the first of our Friday the 13th series, if my days are right. We also, so now we're about to do every Friday the 13th. Now we're about to do uh, The Lighthouse, The Parasite, Three from Hell, and then on Halloween Day, Freddy versus Jason Spectacular. So I hope you guys are having fun. I hope you enjoy uh, what we're doing. Follow us over on Twitter at FilmAlchemist1. We're also on Instagram, Facebook. Uh, Please take a second, leave a rating and review, share the pod with your friends, guys. This helps us out enormously. Uh, And we appreciate it. A lot of you guys have been joining us and doing a lot of good work for us. Uh, So we do appreciate, but enough of that business. Let's talk about Friday the 13th. (laughs) <laughs> Alex, I think this movie is even more fascinating than the the Nightmare series for two obvious reasons, right? One, Jason, who now has become as iconic as Freddy, Michael Myers, right? There are a handful of horror villains that are just so ingrained in our pop culture. Right. The strange thing about this is Jason, as we know him, did not really appear until Friday Part 3. Right. So I think it's fascinating to look at this. What did Friday do, right? Because their their stated mission was essentially to do a ripoff of Halloween. Right. What did they do that separated this movie out and kept this franchise going until Jason appeared and just collectively had our minds shook? I mean, I think, well, yeah, so like, Halloween, it's interesting. Like, I don't know if they, I mean, they've admitted that they totally ripped off the original Halloween idea. Of, if like, I'm the not anthology. mistaken, Sean Cunningham specifically said he saw Halloween and was just like, yeah, we're going to do that for cheap. <laughs> right. So the original idea, too, for Halloween, as well as now Friday the 13th, was to do this anthology series, which is like a different story every time revolving around the Friday the 13th legend or the Halloween legend as, as it went. Um, Obviously, they didn't do that, and uh, instead they decided to make stories based on this, uh, the I would call probably the legend of the Voorhees family, which seems to be pretty yeah. robust as time goes on. Um, well, I if think you guys th- make it with us all the way to Jason Goes it to Hell, right? <laughs> this is the one where Jason essentially is black ooze yeah. that can kind of go between people. Sam has a theory that might recontextualize all of this movie. And I'm not going to jump the shark, but as you listen to all of these, by the time you get to Jason Goes to Hell, Sam get, gave me a really interesting thought to go back and look on. So stay Worth tuned it. for that. <laughs> um, I think what makes Friday the third, the first Friday the 13th sort of distinguishable is uh, the main reason to me is, um, uh, how would I put this? Uh, the cost of having sex is pretty high the cost for teenagers. Of- <laughs> 
I know that's pretty like well-tread territory, but it is like kind of notable in that I, I don't remember watching many. I don't remember watching many horror movies from this era that basically penalized high schoolers for getting laid. Um, in this, I mean, regard. this this is the thing, right? It's Halloween did that as well, right? If you were having sex, you were penalized. Right. Obviously, the famous Michael Myers in the ghost costume, but. What I think is different about Friday, right? I think there there's a couple of things that Friday has working for it that that made it stand out and different, right? Because this sure. is one of the the movies that's helping create the tropes that now are so worn that we understand all of them, right? What I think is fun about this one is I again I go back to I think it's the POV in this one, and what really struck right. me about the POV in the first uh, Friday movie. And you can see it in the first opening, right? When they're doing kind of the kumbaya shot and we're what there's a lot of watching kids through windows, right? Yeah. So from the darkness, you watch through a window, this bright lit, uh, you know, young people that have a bright horizon, you know, fueled by hormones, their inner fires burning bright. Right. And it gives you this ominous feeling, right? <laughs> but what is fun about the POV in this is what I think is fun because the POV puts us in the, the, the mind or the eyes of a killer, right? Yeah. But there's these other shots they do where and you can see it as the two teenagers are running up to the bar and they're like, wow, those uh, singing Kumbaya really got me revved up for sex. Yeah, I always I always found that on this on this viewing, (laughs) that was like actually one of the first notes I took was I was just like, why are they so fucking horned up by sitting around a campfire? Listen to some asshole play guitar like, yeah, no. I can't remember. I mean, like, I think this is probably like the inspiration for fish concerts everywhere. It's like, oh, sweet. We can all play guitar together and then get laid. I think it's the mix of playing guitar. You can feel the dark energies uh, tingling between your body, but also the the constant repression and ham fistedness of trying to be a good little a good little boy and girl. You just want to blow it off. You know what I mean? This is, is, by the way, on record, the first jam sesh that ended in someone getting laid. I'm just going to say that right now. For sure. Yeah, I know when I was in college, as soon as a dude brought out a guitar, it's like, you got to get the fuck out of yeah. my house, dude. It was the Animal like, House thing. It's interesting how that changes. Like, yeah, it was absolutely Animal House. As soon as a guy brought out a guitar, like, you, you're done. Get out of here. Like, no It way. never fails, too, because once they put away the guitar, you're like, you just know. You're like, I don't need to talk to this guy. Nothing good's coming out of that face. Yeah. You right. know, I, I like I like indicators in life. The world is too full of people and content to be wasting my time. <laughs> it's like. It's like, can you speak in power chords? I don't know. We'll figure it out. Yeah. But um, what? so the interesting thing I noticed in this opening scene, right? There's a shot that really stuck with me, and I think this is kind of the fun, the fun trick of this opening, right, is we have our POV of the killer watching the kids. We cut away to another shot right next to it of the kids actually walking. So when you pair the POV with a cutaway, that also is kind of a it's just a standard traditional narrative shot right watching people move through a frame yeah what it does by putting them side by side right that juxtaposition puts us in the spot where now we the audience are forced to have the eyes of a killer right right because when you're in the pov and the camera moves and shakes i think that movement gives you a little separation where you're like oh that's obviously a crazy person that's not me yeah. When you juxtapose it with now you're watching the kids as this kind of godlike predator and you know what's coming. Right. It's actually a really fun trick. And then the other thing they pair with that is the first time anyone sees the killer, right? The two kids, he kind of gets a smile on his face. And he's like, oh, come on. We weren't doing anything. Right. And this is actually a really important part of this one early in the film. 
think of any other movie like this when they see the killer and they don't immediately react in horror you know that the killer is not a traditional madman or a monster right this is a killer that does not immediately set off red flags and then is able to get close enough to murder them so that extra level of oh my god now i'm forced to look through the eyes of a killer right and the killer is just one of us. Well, I think it's like, a really good trick. Well, like imagine watching this in 1980 and seeing that and like then because it's interesting because really because obviously, you know, we have what it's 1980s, it's almost 2020. So we have like almost 40 years of hindsight to like know that it's definitely going to wind up being P.O. Voorhees <laughs> at the end. But like right. what? is interesting is like watching that 1980 the movie actually is less of a horror movie and much more of this like kind of whodunit almost like yeah the whole time when you're watching it like i was watching it again this time and i was like none of these kids are like that 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 scene struck me but then also just you're like none of these all these kids are new it could be a townsperson it's definitely not crazy ralph or anything like that but like i'm literally like because they they try to throw you off the scent with that crazy Ralph thing in the very beginning. Yeah. I'm like, could be a cop. I guess it could be that weird as cop. As soon as crazy Ralph got on, like, the old bicycle, the Wicked Witch Road, I'm like, well, that's not tough enough. Yeah, no, not at this all. This guy's not the dude. But, like, they, <laughs> they, but it's interesting because it starts off with – the like, the first one is much more about who's the killer than it is, like, oh, my God, we know who the killer is. Like, I think that's right. probably the more uh, – intriguing thing about the first movie altogether is that it's just a different animal in and of itself like again we've now gone through 40 years where there are movies like jason x and freddy versus jason right like we've taken this mythos beyond comprehension to another level but this movie in and of itself contained is just a slasher of an unknown origin like that's a really fascinating it's a fascinating thing to keep in mind when you're watching this and I think it's that that extra layer of bringing us more and more into the eyes of the killer. Right. And like you said, it is this who done it because we constantly have people reacting not in horror. Right. Right? And that it's it's the trick that Halloween pulls off as well where it it puts the fear in a world that you'll be, right? That's kind of the joke of Jason to me is I think he's one of the least scary people not only because of the superhuman character he becomes, but you're like I don't go camping. Right. You know, I'll be fine until we learn he goes to New York and San Fran. He's pretty well traveled, actually. <laughs> so very well traveled space. Very <laughs> and hell, very well traveled. And hell, yeah, Jesus God, this guy's passport is legit. <laughs> no, but, uh, but it's it's that the fear that is omnipresent, right? And again, it's the stalking of these young kids. What I was struck by in this first one, there is how honestly most of the kids are pretty nice. Like, there's not a lot of kids that are real rabble rousers there's the super annoying jokester kid yeah and you're like is that that's almost the biggest sin of the movie i mean that's the worst part is like he clearly must die like everyone else is just like there like you don't want to like really bother anyone and it's interesting because kevin bacon's with like his girlfriend yeah right it's not just like a sleazy hookup kevin bacon is just like getting laid by his girl man like that's just his life he's living his best life like he's just being there and it's funny, actually, I was watching it, and I was like, hey, it's Kevin Bacon and Andrea. She's like, get the fuck out of here. Because yeah. I think a lot of people forget he was in the movie. Because it's just yeah. not one of those movies that comes up as part of him. But that's, like, the power of the mythos of the Friday the 13th series is just, like, you could put anybody famous in those movies, and it does not become their movie. It's still a Jason movie. Or it's still a Vortex movie. No, I mean, movie. 
a lot of people pop up in these horror franchises of the 80s, right? <laughs> but I like the Kevin Bacon scene, too, because the producers are like, we've got something here. Let's get a close-up of that bacon butt. You know what I mean? Almost all of these 80s movies were like tits. We need tits and bush, right? Yeah. But this oh, guy's yeah. like, this kid's got magic. Let's get a real close-up of that butt squeeze. <laughs> you know what I mean? But even that scene, right? That scene is beautifully... I, I think what I was struck by going back and rewatching this, because I've seen the Friday the 13th movies so many times, if you just add up all the different movies, I was struck by this kind of low-budget, rip-off film. The, the amount of really quality filmmaking that's happening here. The visual well, storytelling is fantastic. Well, it's inventive. Like, it's stuff that they're not... It's not, They're not reinventing the wheel, but they're definitely inventing something by just being... Uh, it's the combination of the POV shot and the soundtrack and that kind of thing. Like, there's yeah, I like, mean, the music is phenomenal. I mean, that's like really what sells the whole. I, it doesn't sell fear. What it sells is eeriness. It sells impending doom, and that's what I think is the real value of the Friday the Thirteenth movies is the impending doom. Like, even as you go further into them, like uh, two and three have this as well. But like the first one is so well endowed with this feeling of the that. <laughs> That whole thing, yeah. that is so it's it's iconic, yes. But like again, think back to the eighties. The first time you would have heard that, it sounds like breath. It sounds like breath being taken away. Like you don't know what's coming. Yes, there's well, a chance. Once we figure out what it is, too, it's extra chilling. Absolutely, and it's it's another device. Again, we don't know what it is, right? But it's this other device that is sinking us further right. and further into this killer's persona. Right. What I but the Kevin Bacon scene to come back. The thing they do in that scene that is fascinating to me, and this is something that changes as the Friday series moves on, we don't see an enormous amount of the kills on screen in this one. No. Right? It's like you said. It's more about who's doing it. Yeah. And then at the end, we get into, like, the Martha Stewart of dead bodies, right? Where that that kind of behavior, (laughs) which obviously is a Voorhees genetic trait. They love, you know, doing artwork with the body. Yeah. By the way. So Kevin Bacon and his girlfriend are, are banging. Right. And there is this pan up. To the bunk bed above them, where the jokester kid who had followed someone into the cabin, and we don't know who or what, is just laying there with his throat sliced. Awesome. And so the innocence of these kids, right? These are just two kids having fun. You know, they're at a camp. Uh, they're having, you know, a very nice little lovemaking sesh. Yeah. And to be, there is a dead body, another dead child right above them. And so the vulnerableness of them below with this fucking whore, this impending whore right above their head. Yeah. That is a truly terrifying image. And it's the kind of thing that in later Fridays, we're more worried about the the way the body is mangled. Yeah. Right? And not as much about the consequences of it. And that shot, to me, is what separates Friday 1 from the rest of the series. Sure. I would say the other thing that Friday 1 does that none of the, and I, that none of the other ones have done is... Um, so that POV shot, which is very important in the first one particularly, and it's not just, I would say, the P.O. Voorhees shot. I'd actually say also they do this good job of this, like the device of using a POV to kind of throw you off of what you think or who you think the killer might be is really fascinating. Like when they're doing the driving shots, mm-hmm. people are talking directly into camera. They're not look, yeah. like there's no over the shoulder shot. There's no behind the um, you know, there's no behind the um seat shots it's all directly into camera back and forth so right you're not into, like they're talking to you and you're seeing 
like you kind of have to make up your own perception but like you also like particularly the um girl who uh, fucking has to bail out of that truck um oh jesus like which is horrifying yeah. by the way like <laughs> like i don't think there's anything more i i truly believe this like there's to me nothing more terrifying than being stuck in a car with someone who actually like ended up murdering you like there's like well, hitchhiking culture in general is just something that blows terrifying. my mind. Oh, no. I never understood it. it's weird it. because, no, it, it's scary as fuck to think that was like our parents' era, but we've essentially brought that back with Uber. You know what I mean? Just getting yeah. in a car with someone you don't, and there have already been Uber killers. You right. Know? Well, and that's like, like it's, it's that's for sure. Thing. It's amazing to me. We've gone through, how many years have we had Uber now? Probably like five or six years or something like that, where it's been like a mainstay. Yeah, maybe even 10. I don't know. Like, it's been a mainstay of our lives. Like, we say, oh, I'm going to get an Uber. Oh, I'm going to get a Lyft. How have we not had a serious, like, slasher movie about an Uber killer? Like, yeah, I mean, there was a guy who killed four or five people, I think, before he got caught. Yeah, how is that Michigan? Not, how is that not a serial killer story yet? Like, it's amazing to me that no one's like pitched that movie, <laughs> or they have pitched that yeah. movie and they all know it's shit. But like, I, I mean, I could be. I'm wrong. sure it's on Lifetime somewhere. <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely. They, right. they love those movies. But yeah, but, um, but yeah, I mean, even the, the concept of the car, right? That's another interesting one because this is one of our first kills. We see this very just wholesome classic american teenage girl right you know kind of getting a ride and and she does get warned by the town the townspeople have a really interesting role in this too where they're just hey man two teens got murdered here like three years ago knock it off yeah you should run they call it camp blood right right uh so there's kind of a pass to this and he's trying to warn her and she you know as she shakes him off but again she gets in the car with the the driver that right. we still don't know who it is and it it again it takes this extra layer of oh this is a monster that can hide in plain sight right, right. even halloween didn't pull that trick off by yeah. the time that michael myers is an adult and killing he's wearing the giant mask and anyone who sees him is immediately like oh wow that's unsettling right 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 even if you don't know exactly what's happening you know it's oh, yeah. not right this is the only one where they like purposely <laughs> throw you off the scent in a lot of ways and you're wondering right. until the end who it is and again like they do a really good job i mean Talk about just like the all time greatest casting. It might be Mrs. It might be Mrs. Voorhees. Honestly. Oh yeah. Like yeah, Betsy Palmer as Mrs. Voorhees just fucking. Betsy Palmer might be the greatest casting bit of all time. Like she. I mean, her and Robert England. Yeah. Right? Like they both are so. Carrie's mom. Like. Yeah. Robert England obviously has the advantage of makeup, but goddamn, dude, Betsy Palmer has the greatest like. Next to Mrs. Baylock and the Omen, like the greatest crazy lady eyes I've ever seen in a movie. Yeah, like she, I would say that's the Trinity, right? Baylock, Carrie's mom, and then Mrs. Voorhees. Absolutely, that is the Trinity of like terrifying mother figures for sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like she, I, as soon as she pops out of the car, like the once that like she comes out from behind the car, she's like trying to talk to people. You look at her, and you're like something ain't right, like. Sitting there at the end of the movie, too, you've got to assume, like, oh, fuck. Like, even in 1980, a, an astute moviegoer probably is sitting there watching the movie going, like, holy shit, it's fucking her. Like, yeah. and then she starts talking and starts babbling. And again, like, every other movie, this would be considered overacting. But she just does some, like, when she starts, like, lamenting, like, I told Steve not to open the camp again. Like, that kind of thing. When yeah. she starts lamenting, like, every other movie, you'd be like, what an overacting piece of shit. But, oh, my God. It's so chilling. It's so well, I chilling. I think it's because we've spent a lot of time in this movie where we're doing the work of building this character out. Right, right. 
right? So we've laid this entire foundation, you know, of we're plumbing the depths without any information, right? Right. We All we know is that people keep letting the killer get close, right? We see old uh, mustache bandana guy. <laughs> right. He comes out, you know, he's walking up and he goes, oh, hey, what are you doing out here? Oh! Right. So we know this is a problem. And Betsy Palmer showing up when she does, this is our first clue of, oh, fuck. Because that girl, Alice runs into her arm. Yeah, yeah. Right? So this is the first big visual giveaway of, again, we're getting close to the killer constantly. The scary thing they add to Mrs. Voorhees, and this is what does not make sense initially, right? Mrs. Voorhees shows up, has Alice in her arms, right? Does not kill her right there. Does not butcher her. Seemingly put on different clothes because she's not covered in blood. Right. So somehow Mrs. Voorhees changes her clothes, her personality, her mindset, and then goes and gets a car and uses it as a prop to drive up to the house. Gets Alice in her grip, right? She can finish her mission here, but doesn't. Right? Kind of puts on this nice neighborly thing and then goes in the house and sees the bodies and still continues to, oh, good Lord. I, oh, this is terrible tragedy. And then as she starts to lay out what happened to Jason, right? Right. You see the, the despair and the depth begin to come out. Totally. Right? Something is more wrong. And this is a detail I'd actually forgotten. I forgot that she was the chef at yeah. the camp. Oh, yeah. Right? So. This is an extra wrinkle that I thought was important, too, is so she was close enough to be checking in on Jason. She could walk out every couple minutes and be checking on Jason. I think Mrs. Voorhees, like, main motivation truly is grief. Like, she's not out for she's not out for revenge for kids fucking what she feels like she should be. That should be literally the only thing on her mind. But, like, that's a mother's grief. Like, that's a woman who's going through some shit. And like, right. That, I think, is probably the most relevant and most important aspect of, like, the Voorhees legend as, like, Jason becomes the center focus of the stories is the grief and the, like, regret that moves throughout the story. Like, that, I think, is probably the most important thing about the Voorhees family and probably the thing that makes them the most, I would call the, I would say, unkillable is that, I mean, grief, what a motivator, man. Like, I mean, going into part two, you know? Yes. I mean, but this is the cool thing is this of all the backstories, right? Like Michael Myers has no backstory that makes sense. Right. You know, Chucky is like, okay, he's a serial killer doll. Candyman. Yeah. Basic revenge. Pinhead. I don't know. Nipple clamps. Yeah. So, but then you get to the Voorhees and there's this real emotional understory of people who could have just had a good normal life. Right. The only thing that had happened to them is that the son had a, you know, deformity. But that's the kind of thing, and I'm sure it was different back then, but today that's something that, you know, people are used to and deal with and are, you know, we can get by on that. No one's going to judge you or hate you. Well, I mean, some people are just assholes, right? But in the 80s, obviously, you know, there would have been a lot more bullying and this and that. Right. But it's this this understory of grief of, in her working at the camp, being so fucking close to her child, right? She probably worked there specifically to be close enough to help Jason. Right. And this camp is probably an opportunity to try to help integrate him. Unless you're Sam Price's theory from Jason Goes to Hell. It's a different kind of integration. But that extra level of grief of I was close enough that I could have helped in theory right. is insane. But when you see her start to tell the Jason story, 
and you can see her start to separate out right and then when alice and her begin to fight alice is actually kind of whipping her a little bit yeah and you're like she's just been murdering people and lifting them three feet off the ground and staking them the doors with arrows yeah how is this possible right well then we go outside and we get the the illusion right of her in her own head kill them mommy kill them mommy and then we realize the voice we've been hearing the whole movie is her inner son right that she's created yeah kill them mommy she's like i will jason so jason's hand is in a way guiding these fucking murders and it's such a scary psychological break and you see her just lose it yeah right so and and that adds all these other when does she break when does she revert what what are the triggers for these things it adds this extra layer that is so terrifying and betsy palmer you know like you were saying just milks the fuck out of it yeah in a and good way i would say yeah exactly no i think in a great way and honestly like every other movie you've seen from the 80s she would be tagged for overacting like 100 yeah. percent of the time but for sure holy shit dude she makes it le- like it's also this combination of like you psychologically we all just sort of like give it up for mother's grief so like yeah oh fuck dude like well you're a parent now too. yeah exactly right? i'm like i'm not I gonna tag you, i told you this for sure when you have kids the way you watch films totally change. Absolutely. And so now you watch Friday the 13th and you're like, what if my son was the one there? Sure. And counselors, Absolutely. you know, were too busy fingering to watch him and he was deformed and people are bullying him. And I was close enough, but I didn't know. Yeah. Right. Like the, 100%. the extra headspace you can get into and everyone can sympathize with loss of a child. But it's just so much more acute when you can look over and be like, there's my child. Absolutely. <laughs> Do you know, I read I read this. This was actually pretty interesting, too. And I wonder if this would have changed our perspective on Jason at all, was that it was actually, I think it was Tom Savini and two other people who were actually, who were the ones that suggested he be a deformed kid. Because yeah. originally he was just supposed to just be a kid who drowned. Like, yeah. you know, no defo- no deformities, no no anything. And then it was them who said he should be different. Like, yeah, I wonder would have affected the storytelling or the way we interpret the story at all, like our sympathy towards Jason, because honestly, like, I think fascinating. I think the way extrapolate on that. How would how do you mean? Well, I think the way we and it's like I was thinking about this because I sat down and watched three of these in a row, you know, and I sat there and at the end of the day, like, I really felt bad for Jason Voorhees. Like, yes, he's a murderer and all that other shit. But I also have a great deal of sympathy for somebody who, and again, you're right, because I have a kid now, who has, like, such a strong bond with their mother to the point where, like, yeah, they, like, but that's, like, also their only friend. So if he was a normal kid, like, a kid without deformity, a kid without any issues, who just maybe was a loner, like, would that have changed your, would that have changed my perception at all? And I mean, like, I guess the answer would be no. It has to. Because. I mean, I mean it has to, though, right? Like. I mean, this is the point. Why do Savini and them say that? Because they understand that the deformity is an extra emotional trigger for us. It's very much like uh, my kids want to watch all the kids' movies, and at this point, Hunter's almost five. It's like we've seen all the kids' movies. right? And so I was like, what's one that we haven't seen or watched in a long time? We started watching Hunchback of Notre Dame, right? Oh, yeah. And the biggest lesson that, you know, because we kind of talked throughout the movie, and he's like, what's this? Why why does he live up there? Why are they not – like, why won't they play with them? And I was like, well, you know, some people would look at him as monstrous. And he's like, what? And, you know, he's just got that kind of innocence of a child. He's like, why? Right. And I was like, well, some people would see a deformity and, you know, they're uncomfortable around that. It makes us feel bad because 
we don't have that obstacle. So, you know, we have guilt over it and some people internal, you know, that whole thing. Sure, yeah. And I think what you're getting to is in a very specific scalpel sharp way, when we hear that Jason was deformed, again, and knowing when this movie happens, we are building this extra narrative of he was probably picked on. The counselors probably were more neglectful of him. Absolutely. Because he they were uncomfortable. And we do that. He obviously needed more help. Yeah. It adds context to his death and why his mother was at the camp. Right. You know, it. like you said, it adds this extra. We just assume that their bond is so tight because, right. you know, the mother's love can overcome all these things. And we assume that the other people can't. So it seems like a small thing. Right. But if it was just oh, a dead no. child. I mean. Right. Yeah, if it was, I mean, look, I I don't mean to trivialize. Look, if it was my kid, I would be fucking furious and sad as hell. I'm with you. No, I'm not just saying. Like, <laughs> oh, five normals. Normals, <laughs> fine. Drown those fuckers. Yeah. Like, no, that's yeah, not what you I'm can getting at at all. Literally, do a uh, a bathtub ducky with the normal kids. <laughs> I don't care. But one Jason, no. Like, I, I think what it is, it. Yeah. And this is, you know, how it is when you tell a story, right? Like, I remember writing a script once, and I wrote this one extra adjective in a description for a character. And it ruined my whole short film because they were all stuck on, well, why did you use this word with this character? Yep. And I'm like, did you guys not read the rest of that? Ah! Yeah. But that's how it is, right? That one adjective can – that's all we get of Jason, too. There's no flashback. There's no anything else, right? We know that he's a child, he's dead, and he's deformed. Right. Right? So that's all we know about him. So that's a third of the information we have about right. that boy. That's like- And it makes the other two – uh, more deep. It makes everything a little more cohesive to the point where, like, you do feel sympathy going forward for all of for all of the movies. Like, even yeah. as we get into the more like insane stuff, like Jason goes to hell, Jason takes Manhattan, like the weirder things. I don't think I've ever felt the amount of sympathy I felt for Jason as I did watching these three. I'm like, this kid has been through the fucking ringer, and now he has to like he has like this eternal bond of bidding to do for his dead mother who not only part two part two plays on that a lot right not like and not only is it the yeah and like going into part two not only is it this like uh not only is it this like sort of like trance like motivation of like i have to do this Mm -hmm. for my mother there's also this deep grief that like oh my fucking mom got iced in the first movie so like now i'm like super upset like there's so much there's so much grief built into part two that it makes part one that much more like uh, coherent and that much more cohesive. Because look, you could chalk it up to like a slasher movie. And again, like, look, I'll be completely honest with you. Friday the Thirteenth movies are not my fav, not necessarily my favorites, or not necessarily my cup of tea. But this viewing and thinking of it that way, and it very might, it very well might be like we've talked about. I have a kid now. The, yeah. Something about it crystallized for me this viewing where I was like, yeah. fuck, dude, there is some serious sadness going on here. Well, especially in part one and two, three is kind of where it breaks into the more standard Jason right, right. we understand. Right. But the other I mean, there's just so much to break down. Right. Also, just that, you know, the idea of just watching this kind of sad mother stalking around the camp trying to kill another child. Right. Right. The, the absurdity of that image and logic. It, it adds this whole other thing, right? She's not a tradition. I mean, again, like Halloween did it when in the opening we see a killer who has a man hand, right? Obviously like a six foot tall man. Right. And they pull the mask off and it's just this cute, innocent kid, right? There's something extra scary about the the lack of the madman 
well, yeah. you know, out front, right? Like, when you see Frankenstein's monster in those old Karloff movies, you're like, right. I would be fucking scared of that. If I saw that guy coming at me in the shadows, I'd be scared, right? right? Well, don't but you think... she looks like everyone... Everyone has an aunt or a mom or right. a Mrs. Voorhees in their life. And to see that lady snap, it's just... It's so strange. And the, and the fight scene lasts a long time. Oh, it goes forever, <laughs> man. Like, honestly, yeah. I was I was surprised. I'm like, I can't believe that. Like, honestly, at the end of the day, I was like, Alice survived. This is shocking to me. Like, yeah. I was like, how did she well, get through this? Like, this is a woman who especially literally. Especially how she did it. Yeah, well, yeah. Like, there's so much, like, again, I, <laughs> the Voorhees must be the strongest family on earth, like, just bred strong. Because, again, oh, lifting yeah. someone and, like, putting arrows through them and, like, stapling them to a door essentially i was very i mean impressed. she lifted the joker kid up onto the second bunk yeah she tied old stash upside down in the tree you're like this is serious crossfit yeah. games level like, power that this is <laughs> like but this... that's it in a way as the series gets more supernatural it feels like she's imbued with some kind you know it's the old sure a mother's adrenaline she can flip a car oh yeah she no she's definitely like hulk-like <laughs> strength the entire movie and like but yeah. like covert behind the scenes shit which what which i guess like well, I, I asked my wife when we were watching, I was like, come over here. And she's like, what are you doing? And I just picked her up, right? And I was like, how would I, like, get your ass up on a bed? Right. And I was like, you know, my wife is not probably as heavy as some of the guys in this movie. And I was just like, oh, definitely not. Sorry, I don't want her to hear that and be like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? My wife is tall and slender. You know that. But, I, you know, you're just like, how do I, how would I lift my wife? You know, I've lifted her before. It's like, how, do, how would you do these feats of strength that are required of Mrs. Voorhees, and you're like, oh, there's some extra power. Oh, my God. See, the light of God came down and shined on me as soon as I started talking. But, no, I mean, I think that's the thing. And the, the death of Mrs. Voorhees is extra intense, too, because she doesn't put up any defensive no. moves. No, she's all offense, man. Like, she – No, but, but she seriously sits there and does a – it reminded me of the Monty Python scene where Lancelot keeps barreling over the hill. Right. Because she's just ah! – with her mouth open – doesn't even get a hand up, no. right? Like, take a forearm off or take a hand off. Just takes that machete right to the neck. Yeah. And in that moment, you wonder if something had snapped and she had clicked back into the more Mrs. Voorhees dominant. Right. And her grief is overwhelming. Maybe she sees a moment to escape this eternal grief of hers. Right. It's a weird, it's a weird moment in the film where you're trying to understand why she doesn't defend herself. And I know what people say is, oh, well, they had to end the movie. All right, well, think of it more in a more fun way, right? Yeah. It's like my discussions this weekend about Joker where some dipshit always pops up and is like, well, the whole movie could have been a hallucination of a crazy person. And I was like, yeah, that's cool. Let's just turn our conversation into the most boring, useless waste yeah, of time. Great. Cool. Cool. If we're going to sane elsewhere everything, then <laughs> yeah. what the fuck are we doing here? Or we can pretend what we saw is a story that was put together for a reason for us to explore the human mind. Let's go. Yeah. Let's go. And so that's what I'm always wondering in Mrs. Voorhees is, was that a moment where Mrs. Voorhees kind of impotently keeps trying to kill this Alice girl? She should have been able to handle her based on what we've already seen. Is there some part of her that didn't want to keep going after this? Was there some part of her that realized she would be taken away from the, the location of the grief? Go to jail, something well, like that. Did Mrs. Actually, Voorhees want out? I would say, I would put it this way. I would put it to you this way. Based on just like since we're talking a lot, I've watched so many horror movies this month. Um, <laughs> you poor man. <laughs> uh, I would like as far as like horror movie rules go. 
She did not have sex on camera, did she? Alice? No. <laughs> no, she did commit one of the biggest sins of the movie, though, which is engaging in a game of strip monopoly. Ah, uh, yes, strip monopoly. But that... Doesn't that seem... Un- like, can you imagine being like, well, I'm naked, and now I have to play for four more hours yeah, until seriously. I slowly go back? seriously. That's a horrible back. idea. Who does that? Oh. I mean, obviously... I was strip trying mono- to think. I was like, what is the least sexy foreplay of all time? Strip monopoly. No, no. <laughs> I think uh, strip risk would be way, way, way less. Oh, no. Strip risk is aggressively powerful. <laughs> There's an animal ferocity to risk that I would like. And the betrayals, right? Which is like, you betrayed me for one brawl cup. And it's like, you're damn right I did. I'm coming to Iceland. Trying to think, that would be sexy. Trying to think of other, like, strip boggle or strip sorry. Something like that. No. Literally, any game that's ever been invented, Chinese checkers doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Monopoly is the least sexy right. game. It's fascinating. That's like something your stupid uncle who reads the Wall Street Journal and loves Republican politics would be like, Oh, strip monopoly. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think um I'm not sure. Like I feel like the I feel like maybe I don't know if she was tired or like she felt like her mission was complete. I would say it would Or did she just kind of wake up, right? And was like, "What is happening here?" I mean, it could it's be It's an interesting moment. It could be that. I I mean, like her just saying Man, that is a good question. Shit. Because once they go to slow-mo, it's it's almost as if they're exaggerating the fact that she's not fighting anymore. Right. Um, I mean, she did take a lot of granny concussions, it looked like. You're like, <laughs> a lot of head trauma for old Mrs. Voorhees. This is not going to go well no matter what. But I it's would a strange, say... a strange decision Yeah. to have that really slow, no-reaction head lop. No self-preservation instinct whatsoever. I mean... Maybe she knew. Maybe she knew she could carry on. Because obviously, like, I, what's interesting, too, is, like, the way the movie ends, which is the big reveal, the big surprise, um, which they try to play off as, like, oh, you had a hallucination or whatever. I'm like, it wasn't a hallucination. It totally happened. So, like, again, Maybe. I... Oh, no, it happened for sure. All right, well, let's let's go to the end, because this is the weird thing that happens in uh, almost every one of the first nightmares is... Wow, what a traumatic experience of watching my friends murder and then murdering myself. I best hop in this canoe yeah. and float aimlessly. I was like, wow, you guys really like that visual metaphor. They just they just were <laughs> but, like, we haven't shot anything on this lake at this point. Can we get some more sh- right. lake shots? Like, that's really what it I was. I actually think, though, the reveal of Jason popping out from under the water yeah. is probably the greatest jump scare in the history of cinema. Totally. Right? I would imagine the first time you watch that, it's, because, again, they, they bring the killer into this real-world mother, you know, grief thing. Right. We see her beheaded. Alice floats out. You see police officers on the shore. Everything's going to be okay. When he erupts from that serene lake and is deformed and covered in muck, it adds this extra layer of supernatural ghoul, right. which is so fucking brutal. It's awesome. This is my biggest beef with the Nightmare series is that the first three movies love to do the extra – scene that doesn't help at all right imagine if that movie had just cut on the rippling water as she's pulled under and that's all you're left with is oh my god but the waking up and saying oh it was obviously a dream or was it right because they try to come back to well he's still out there right all right well maybe like i think what they're saying is that you know you can leave it open to Jason is eternally out there, right? That sure. this trauma will forever be a part of this place. Yeah. Fine. I mean, I fine, think fine, it's, fine. Yeah. 
it's such an unnecessary silly extra scene right to have that powerful of an image to end on and just hey, let's go ahead and fuck this up we're like a hospital talkie scene it'd be Bummer. interesting to watch that whole movie and that whole movie recut and end on that shot just end on him dragging her under right because then because the whole ending seems to be her saying he's still out there yeah well we just saw him fucking drag you under we know he's out there we don't have to say it mm. right like just leave that for the audience and be like oh fuck right could you imagine by the way this is one of those things i love to do my uncle is really into horror movies and so he's the one who told me his like famous exorcist story about how people in the theater were just fucking losing their minds yeah so I always love to take myself, imagine being in one of those theaters at this time when you're not seeing a ton of stuff like this and that fucking kid erupts out of the lake. What must be happening in those theaters? I mean, I think you hear. I bet like, people were losing their fucking minds. Like, I think it's less gasp and more. I mean, like you'd hear like legit horror girl screaming. screams. Yeah, like screaming. legit screaming. Yeah. Well, that's what I mean, right? So imagine being in those theaters. Who even was paying attention to what happened in that oh, hospital? No. That I mean, that theater was probably in a full lather at that point. I mean, again, like think about that last shot too, which is shot in this really beautiful, like that really yes. beautiful, like lake ripple. It's kind of, um, kind of washed out and a, like you know, it's it's like a soft lens. It's very beautiful, and she literally it's has a, her, it's a landscape painting, right? Oh yeah, she From her this, hand this is chaotic, handheld kind of movie we've yeah. been watching it's like a slow you just push have this in wide serene yeah. yeah like the slow push in and her hands just like drifting on the water like it's literally like a fucking fresco painting like you're just like yeah this is just a fresco from the 80s and then right whoosh, ah! and like, the makeup is fucking awesome this kid that we've heard of and this is the other thing because then you're like oh my god was he triggered by his mom's death is he coming back for revenge was he there the whole time? Why didn't he just go hug his mom? <laughs> Why didn't he just go hug his mom and go live in the basement, right? She can feed him counselors one at a time so it's not as conspicuous. Like, there are hitchhikers that could be your buffet. So your mind is racing and exploding. Don't go to a hospital and tell me it may have been a dream. It's amazing. Don't do that. It's one of the great sins of cinema is the over-explained moment. Yeah. Where someone filmed this thing that, you know, we talk about alchemy on this show all the time, right? There are things in movies that you just add them together, and it is a magical lightning right. explosion, right? Like a, a Molmir from Thor. And it, it just works, right? right? That moment is burned into our minds, and you have a primal reaction. Well, like, I also... But then some executives are like, well, I don't know. Well, I think we that's the thing... We need to explain it away. I actually think that has a lot to do with the time. Like, the time period of this movie coming out probably required an explanation. Like... Psycho's the best example of this. Psycho's ending is so shocking and so surreal. But right. the reason that like you have that like voiceover of uh Norman Bates' mother describing herself and like you get that slow like rather than it just being like silent and you get a nice slow push in on Norman Bates when he starts smiling, like the reason that they have to like have this big long explanation of what it was is because at that time absolutely nobody understood psychoanalytics psychology the psychology of serial killers so that they had right. to do is explain the trauma he suffered and then explain further so like rather than just have norman bates's mother's voiceover you have to have a doctor explain like well here's what happened to him and here's how it went down i actually think that probably is the 1980 equivalent of this which is i had a dream sure. i'm in the hospital now i had such profound trauma and i still think he's out there though like that's what i think it but is 
it's also a, a more visceral image of just again i think psycho could have stood but the time is right in the 80s we all understand the undead ghoul right right sure. like the intense power of that moment being kneecapped by this extra scene right just a bummer man it's a bu- <laughs> and especially in hindsight when we know where this is going right right we know he is still out there god look the light of god just crushing me today. loving you but yeah so i i i mean i looked back and on this film i was struck by i think you said it best right there's a lot of creative filmmaking yeah the the powerful use of the pov and then jumping back and forth between instead of doing one really long pov of mrs Voorhees walking upstairs to find kids cutting to another you know shot on sticks so that we can see uh you know oh now we're the killer point of view that kind of stuff the kids not necessarily being killed on camera is a, a thing that is so foreign to friday the 13th at this point right it, it adds this extra layer again like you said it's this really cool whodunit and by the time we discover whodunit there is this amazing performance of just a woman in grief right that you know this constantly reliving this horror and totally. inflicting it on these other fairly innocent kids which is another thing that becomes very foreign in friday I think this is the movie that stands apart and on its own. And I think it's one of those two at this point, I think most fans have kind of pushed it down their rankings a little because it's not classic super Jason as we like, but I think it actually might be the most well-made of all of the Friday, the 13th films. It definitely has the most heart. I would say it's in my top four. I, I haven't settled on my official rankings yet, but I was, I was really impressed with the, the actual filmmaking of this one as you should be. It's fascinating. Yeah, it was good, man. It was a really interesting, fun journey. And uh, the journey is not over for Jason. Uh, He will erupt from the lake again in Friday the 13th. Part two, which we will be delivering you on Monday, I believe. So while you wait for us, uh, please rate and review the pod wherever you find us. Share it on your socials. Get a hold of us and let us know uh, what you would like to hear in December, man, when we stuff your stocking. Give you whatever movies you want. And next month, The Pod Breaks Bread. Uh, movies that have really cool dinner scenes or dinner parties. So we got some awesome movies coming up. We have some awesome guests coming. So many good things in the theaters. Uh, yes. For the film Alchemist, I'm Josh Griffey. I'm Alex Dandino. What if it was just like, instead of that whispering, he's just like, Mom, I'm in the fucking lake still. <laughs> <laughs> Totally different series. <laughs> <laughs>